Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Summer's just around the corner. So give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. Hi and welcome to a replay episode of the podcast and it's from my conversation with Sarah Wilson from 2019. We were discussing her book First We Make the Beast Beautiful and Sarah had come over from Australia and we were in London in a studio recording and her book genuinely is hands down the most incredible book I have ever read. It was the best book I'd read at the time and it remains so about anxiety and what it really feels like to live with it, battle it, come to terms with it, adapt to it and understand it. It's so brilliant and she's so generous with her personal experience in that book which makes it so valuable for anybody experiencing anxiety or anybody who knows somebody who's experiencing anxiety to really understand the machinations of how it feels and what it's like. So my conversation with Sarah had a huge impact on me And at the time, it was, well, it had a huge impact on me at the time. And it's a conversation that since then, I'll get flashes of it sort of come back to me when I'm just doing odds and sods. And I think, God, Sarah said that. That's so true. And given that Sarah and I hadn't met before, I was stunned at how comfortable it was instantly, how comfortable we were with each other. And I definitely was with her. And how honest we both were about our experiences of anxiety and how they affect every day of our lives now. And if you're a long-time listener, then you'll know that this is something I've contended with after a diagnosis of severe anxiety back in 2016. And I've worked really hard and it's felt at times as though I've clawed my way out of the bleakest of headspaces and steered myself away from behaviours that were essentially self-harm And I have honestly felt like I've white knuckled my way through a lot of it too. And some of it was just deep introspection and long dark nights of the soul and just really wanting to not feel that way anymore. But it's not necessarily a topic I revisit or talk about a lot from my own personal lens. Because if there's one thing I want to share with anyone experiencing anxiety is that there are ways out. I don't want to keep anyone in that headspace. And I think it can feel quite comfortable to get the label and wear it. But the label of anxiety is not something I wanted to wear. That was my personal feeling and experience. It might be a part of me and it might be something that I work against, but it is something I accept. But equally, it is something I actively attempt to minimize and overcome. However, this conversation is one where I felt comfortable enough to be the most honest I have probably been about my own anxiety and how it made me feel and how it makes me feel. 
And Sarah's insights are just so valuable because she really does tell the story of how it how it showed up and how we how we can conflate type A personalities thinking it's so great with anxiety. You can you can think that being type A is a wonderful thing to be and is what you should aim for, but actually that, that's that can get you on that spiral of really developing anxiety. If you're telling yourself all the time, if I'm worried, if I'm working all the time, then that's great. Actually, your body just goes into fight or flight constantly. So it's just, and she's done all the research and she explained so much of it in the conversation. And I do hope that by sharing this again, it reaches the person who needs to hear it, to feel a sense of comfort that you're not alone. And also that it empowers you to know that the state of anxiety is not concrete and things can and will get better. And there are tools and various tips and insights in this episode that I hope sort of lay the breadcrumbs, set the path, I don't know, turn on the light to know that there's something to be working towards and that things can feel different and that different can feel better. So the link to Sarah's book and social media will be in the show notes. But here we are revisiting my conversation with the author and speaker Sarah Wilson on The Emma Gunn Show. And welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner. And in this episode, I'm joined by the author and speaker, Sarah Wilson. Sarah is someone I've wanted to speak to ever since her book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, a new story about anxiety, landed on my desk a couple of years ago. But until recently half the planet kept us apart. Sarah is based in Australia. I am based in England. You see the issue. And this is not a conversation that necessarily could have happened over the internet. It needed the personal touch. The book is incredible. It is, it's a book that found me at a time when I really needed it, when I was riddled with anxiety, self-doubt, and a new reality where I was told I was suffering with anxiety and depression. And it spoke to me in a way that I could understand. You may know Sarah's name from the I Quit Sugar book and subsequent business she built, but this book chronicles her struggles with anxiety and why I found so much value in it and have recommended it to so many friends is because it contains not only visceral accounts of anxiety, panic, uh, bipolar and mental anguish, but also offers professional insight, scientific data and anecdotes that serve as breadcrumbs for you to find your way out of, away from or around your own struggles, however they may manifest in your specific case. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the book, why she wrote it and why she wrote it the way she did, showing signs of anxiety as a child, working with various professionals all through her life, dealing with diagnoses, the celebration of type type A traits, which let's face it, type A traits can also be uh, the traits of someone who is hyper, maybe manic, coming through and away from anxiety and ultimately seeing it as a good thing, a higher sense of consciousness that can be helpful and not a hindrance. Side note, it's one thing to read someone's book and to feel that they've articulated the muddy pools of stagnant confusion that have been sitting in your brain, but to then meet Sarah and have this conversation, I honestly felt pretty moved by it, I really did. If you follow me on social media, you may have seen me do an Insta story where I was like, oh, I've just had the most amazing podcast recording and it was the recording with Sarah. Sarah is incredibly generous with her insight. She has so much interesting information, interesting information and useful information. Even her research on walking is something I won't be quick to forget, definitely, and adds so much value to the conversation about anxiety and mental health. The fact that people have read her book not only to find their own comfort, 
but it's by people who've read it who are seeking to understand the people around them who struggle is testament to just how thorough and complete it is on the subject it's a magnificent piece of work so I should probably start letting her do the talking obviously all the links from the show including Sarah's social channels and the book will be available in the show notes which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode and just a quick note we did record this in a studio the sound did come back a bit a bit iffy I have done my best to fix it I think it's fine but you may need to really ramp up those speakers and I apologize about that um I have done everything that I have been able to do in post in order to try and uh, get it into the best shape possible but I hope that that doesn't take away from your enjoyment and from the uh, from what Sarah says because she's a brilliant brilliant guest so here she is making her debut on the Emma Gunn show it's Sarah Wilson Sarah Wilson, I am delighted to have you on the show, genuinely. Thank you, thank um, you. 26 hours of flight have kept us apart, and now you are here. <laughs> yes, yes, with, with 26 hours of uh, sleep seriously lacking, but yes, very, very happy to be here. Thank you. And you have written books, but a book that we I really want to focus on in this episode is an incredible book called First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which really chronicles anxiety and well it, that doesn't even cut that's not even the tip of the iceberg is it yeah um I mean really it's what's been really interesting is that people who don't have anxiety have resonated with it mm. because I think it cuts to the core of our human yearning you know mm. I've really given away the whole podcast haven't <laughs> I now um and the premise <laughs> the entire conclusion of the book but um yeah it cuts to the human yearning for something deeper something that's primal Mm. it's a kind of like a primal scream and I think those of us with anxiety um probably feel it deeper Mm -hmm. and more real um and more urgently Mm -hmm. due to circumstances whatever Mm -hmm. they might be they might even be biological um and uh Anxiety is simply, I guess, our kind of trigger, our warning mm-hmm. sign, the symptom that's just saying, hey, there's something to be investigated mm-hmm. here. So, And you've been really honest. You started displaying signs of what you might call anxiety or OCD from a really young age. Yeah. With yeah. insomnia and things like that. Yeah. Before anyone around me could really put a name to it mm. or, or work it out, my poor parents mm-hmm. just, I think, just looked at me in shock. <laughs> it was their permanent reaction to mm. me. Um, and uh, they they grappled with it as best they could. But, you know, in the 70s and 80s, there was no dialogue mm. around this, especially in rural Australia, you know. Like, we went into town once a week and it certainly wasn't to connect with other anxious people <laughs> I love the story about um your childhood about how the fact you um self-sustaining yeah a residence and following the council truck and picking up the concrete like your story is absolutely fascinating so as a child was it was it that you were just seen as being oversensitive? yeah oh uh, it was kind of those two things there were two responses there was uh-oh Sarah's bored again um ah. so there was that one I was bored therefore I I sort of you know lost my shit you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> and I'd be I was constantly inventing things and getting worked up over mm. things and had my first business at 12 and what? I was yeah I was very 
industrious and that's how it played out. Right. Um, so the uh-oh, it's bored was probably accurate, I suppose, in some ways. And then um, and also because I was very spiritual, I would you know, asked to be taken to different churches on Sunday. I, I don't know how I researched it, but mm. I would, you know, get mum and dad to drop me off. They'd go to their Catholic church in town and, and then I would go off to these other, you know, the Hare Krishnas, Baptists, whatever I could find. Mm. I think I must have looked up the yellow pages or something. I mean, this is decades <laughs> before the internet. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I suppose it was the board thing and then also just I was intense. Mm. And, you know, Emma, I don't know if you get this, but mm-hmm. <laughs> people in the street just feel they've got licence to come up to me and go, oh, you're, you're just so intense, you know. Um, and People not, in the street come up and say that well, to you. Well, people who barely know me, yeah. you know what I mean? Like it seems to be something that people are allowed to do. Um, and it sort of always sort of surprised me. I mean, it would be the equivalent of me saying to someone, you know what, you're a little bit dull, <laughs> you know, <laughs> fire up. <laughs> I do think it's funny. I do think when you're anxious, definitely when I've been at my most anxious, that's when I will have altercations with people in the street. Isn't that really weird that you say that? It's almost like sometimes I feel like I isolate myself and we can definitely talk about that because I yeah. think we both have similar experiences there. But when I go out into the world, it feels like I have a layer of skin missing if I'm feeling very, very anxious And it's almost as if I attract other people who feel the exact same way. And I remember coming out of Victoria Station once and this quite elderly lady clearly being really frazzled by all of the people rushing by with suitcases. And she yelled at me. And I was just there with no suitcase, just minding my own business. But I think I just looked at her with a look that said, I am feeling quite terrible too. Yeah. I think there's something in that, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that when I haven't slept my nerve endings are very frayed mm. and um, or just when I'm anxious um, mm. and in certain circumstances I will always get anxious, particularly facing a new environment for sleeping in. Sleep is a big mm. trigger for me. But my sm- sense of smell and sound is just so acute really? and that comes, yeah, it goes hand in hand with a number of anxiety disorders and I'll segue briefly to explain that because I find it really interesting. Yeah. Um, you might remember there's an anecdote in the book where Diane Fosey, who's um, studied chimpanzees for many, mm. many years, I think it was in the 60s, she did one study where she removed the sort of the hypersensitive chimps who displayed obsessive compulsive disorder type traits and they represented the same proportion um, uh, as in sort of the human population, about 1.4% of the population anywhere in the world, including the chimp world, is OCD, right? And same with bipolar. Um, you know, you go to the deepest, darkest parts of the Amazon or the Sahara, and it's the same as here in London. So um, she removed those chimps from the clan, and the clan died out in six months. What? Yeah. It's a really good illustration of this notion of first we make the beast beautiful, mm. that if we reframe anxiety as actually an evolutionary quirk that mm-hmm. needs to exist in a certain proportion of the population to ensure our survival. Mm. And so in the past, it it was the chimps that heard the sounds in the middle of the night and went, guys, we've got to get out of here, or could smell the poison in a food and go, don't touch that. Mm-hmm. And these chimps were also on the outskirts of the crew. They were sort of bullied a bit. Mm-hmm. They, they kept themselves. However, the clan couldn't survive without them. And I think in the human experience, that's also really important mm-hmm. to know. It, if you think about it, and I mentioned this in the book, 
the best wartime or disaster leaders have always been those with some kind of anxious disorder. Yeah. Generally Churchill. by yeah. yeah, Churchill. Generally bipolar. Mm. And it's that hypervigilance, hyper-awareness and the ability mm. to kind of rise above disaster because um, that kind of flawness is part mm. of your everyday existence. So that's the realm that we thrive mm. in. So back to the sensitivity, um, it, it does go hand in hand mm. with anxiety. And I'm the same as you. Like when I'm having like a hypersensitive day, mm. I will find it'll be this the sniffer that sits next to me at yoga. It'll be the snorter that sits next to me at the cafe. It'll yeah. be the table that wobbles and the toast that's burnt. It, it'll just compound. And as I've got older, I've actually come to see it as some kind of karmic test to build up my resilience around this, you mm-hmm. know, because you could go downhill, couldn't you, if you yeah. bump into somebody outside the mm-hmm. tube and it just, you know, just makes everything even shittier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's quite good to see it as almost sort of this is our lot in life, mm-hmm. this is our evolutionary quirk and we're being tested, to, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like the canaries down the mine shaft. Yes, and I think with the book as well, Making, Making the Beast Beautiful, I definitely feel like I made massive leaps in understanding and living with and dealing with anxiety when I decided to view it as a superpower. Yeah. And it's a choice, isn't it? Mm. Mm. You know, I mean, again, I'm just going to keep referencing things from the book. It's not like it's I fine. just The talk. link will be in the show notes, listeners. The link will be in the show notes. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I spent a long time writing the book, so presumably I remember some of the content. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, excitement and anxiety, when they do brain scans on people who are experiencing one or the other, they find that it's the same activity, the same neurons are fired up in mm. the brain. And so we can actually make a choice, for instance, when we're anxious to deem it as anxi- as, as excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a number of, I use the word choice just like you did then, uh, quite a lot mm. because when things are super bad, no one's going to come and rescue us. There's no drug out there that really works. Mm-hmm. Um, and therapy only works when you do decide mm. to take a certain course through this. And I suppose, you know, um, we, our generation have grown up with anxiety seen through the pharmacological you know, sort of mm. model or the 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 the, uh, the medical model. Mm. And what I tried to do with this book is take the discussion beyond that to a more of a spiritual and philosophical mm. and emotional sort of um, lens. Mm. Yeah. And speaking of the book, is it right that you wrote 60,000 words and mm-hmm. went, nah? Yeah. <laughs> I take a really, really long time to do everything. And indecision, again, mm. is tied in with... Anxiety. When you're mm-hmm. anxious, you can't make decisions. And when you've got to make a lot of decisions, it'll make you anxious because they're the same part of the brain mm-hmm. and one taxes the other. So, um, yeah, I spent, I've spent a lot of my 45 years um, doing stuff, pulling back, going back to it, mm. revisiting it, re, like massaging it mm. um, until eventually I give birth to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a painful process, but I also know... I could not have put that book out until I was ready until and until I thought it was a really worthwhile package that would help humanity, not mm. to sound too Pollyanna-ish. But mm. back when I wrote it, um, I wasn't ready. I didn't have the wisdom. I didn't have the distance from it. I hadn't done enough of the journey myself. What was great was um, what did come out of that 60,000 words. I ended up throwing it all away. Wow. But that time, um, at the same time I was quitting sugar, 
and the I Quit Sugar business mm. emerged from that and sort of, you know, I went and did that for a number of years, mm. set up the business, you know, I wrote a few books. and um, A huge business, by the way, listeners, which we will get on to. <laughs> um, and, and, yeah, gradually, gradually I did my own work and started and I travelled the world while running this business. Mm. I lived out of one suitcase for eight years and it really that book, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, took seven years to research and write um, because it just took that long for me to have something worth saying. You and I have similar backgrounds in that we've both worked on magazines for many years. And so I don't know about you, but you can wear a subject for a day, day and a half, a week, however long the pieces and however long you have before your deadline and you can regurgitate it and you can do a good enough job Mm. but this definitely felt like something that had been processed and reinterpreted and then shared in order to add value it's literally like how can I make somebody understand firing neurons (laughs) yeah it was um I mean I sat in it I suppose you know what's the difference is it was almost like um you know that sort of immersive style of journalism mm-hmm. like it's that fourth wall the Rolling Stone interview yeah, yeah yeah that kind of thing um I knew that to write a book about this topic I needed to be there with the reader not mm-hmm. on a pulpit you know um like a guru unfortunately and I hate to say it, a lot of men in this sort of self-help space tend to do that very didactic style where, you know, they've been rescued, they've solved all their problems, they've put a trademark on whatever Mm. sort of approach they've decided to become an expert in and off they go and write some bestseller books. I think with this kind of thing, you've got to do it eye to eye. It's almost like we're in it together. Yeah, And um, so the book's actually written very much in real time Mm. and I felt it was important at times, like there's slabs of it written where I was in the middle of a panic attack and I write through it and I'm there sitting naked in some Airbnb and I'm staying in at four in the morning and I'm writing it and that mm. that's in the book. And I don't pretend to come out healed and I think I even used that line. Mm. Um, however, I did emerge from the journey with a bigger, more potent and worthwhile character, hmm. I feel. Mm. And that's that's sort of how I, yeah, I go through it. But it's an interesting perspective what you say about the magazine writing mm. where you have a beginning, a middle and a conclusion mm-hmm. and then you send it all off. This is more like we're going through this together. Yeah. Yeah, because my particular type of magazine writing was, was celebrity profiling and celebrity interviews. Yep. So it would be wear them like a second skin for however long you had write the feature but then you could quite easily shed it not always easily to hasten yes that's true (laughs) (laughs) but this this just um yeah I definitely felt like I remember at the time messaging when I was reading it sending pictures of pages to my friends saying I could have written these words these this is exactly how it feels and I have always felt that that's what um good journalism should be Mm. where a reader actually genuinely thinks that all I've done is written exactly what they could have written Mm. but they just didn't get around to doing it you know (laughs) what I mean yeah 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 same with movie making all of Tarantino's movies oh yeah I I could have done that if I had a bit of of spare time (laughs) um but can we talk about panic attacks Mm. because you talk about writing through it um it's interesting because obviously everybody's panic attack will manifest in a completely different way. And I um, I wonder, did you have to sort of hone that skill of being able to sit and write through it? 
Well, what's really interesting about panic attacks, and I learned this, it was one of the things I wanted to get to the bottom of because mm. I actually don't have the kind of panic attack that people often talk about where it feels like you're having a heart attack and mm-hmm. sometimes people present to hospital thinking yeah. that they're having a heart attack mm. and where people often genuinely don't know what's going on until mm. somebody says you're having a panic attack. So I actually don't necessarily have those. And I actually spoke to a number of psychiatrists and drilled down and finally was able to arrive at a point where somebody actually was able to make the distinction. They said there's panic attacks that are somatic so that you wear them in your body. And often it's people who are quite new to anxiety. So they may have developed anxiety from something traumatic that happened, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of in their 30s or 40s. And all of a sudden anxiety hits them and they do not know what's hit them Mm -hmm. because it's a new experience experience. And of course, we wear it in our body because that's where anxiety has always been Mm. worn. The flight or fight response is literally a triggering of a whole heap of stuff that makes us ready to bolt Mm -hmm. or belt, you know. Um, Makes perfect, perfect sense. Mm. Now, if we don't have an outlet for that, i.e. we're not being chased by a tiger and and we, you know, outrun it or get eaten, either way, you know, we don't stay in anxiety for very long because there's a a conclusion, Um, then we we sort of stay in that space. Now, I um, used to get those kinds of things when I was in my teens. Right. Then what happens is you've had a number of those. You come out of it and you um, can rationalise it. You do know that it's a you know that it's a, a severe amount of anxiety, and then it becomes a head orientated thing because then you start to over process, and essentially it goes like this: Oh my god, I'm having one of these stupid anxiety episodes, and then you get anxious about that. Then you get anxious about being anxious. Then you get anxious about being anxious about being anxious, mm. and it becomes a head clusterfuck. Mm. And that's the kind of that's why I call them anxiety spirals in the book. Mm. to distinguish it from panic attacks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole heart palpitation thing, that's not the predominant thing for me. The predominant thing is just this overwhelm, this flooding of thoughts, mm. pulling me all kinds of directions, and ultimately I end up freezing. Um, what I did find about panic attacks, um, for, for anyone listening who does suffer from them, is that they only last 20 to 30 minutes max. Now, once you know this, mm. right, and you can rationalise it and remember, I don't know, write it on your hand, write it, you know, mm. on the back of your door, whatever it might be, um, you can actually sit through 20, no, anyone can sit through to 20 to 30 minutes of pain mm. if you know it's going to end. Mm-hmm. So let it play itself out and don't do anxiety twice. That's such good advice. Mm-hmm. And it's true. Every, I mean, the science shows a panic attack is 20 to 30 minutes. Yeah. I mean, this kind of stuff doesn't get talked about. Instead, we're given drugs or it's pathologised or we're told that, you know, this is a really big epidemic. Mm. I mean, if you just tell people the facts, the science, then we can start to rationalise it, see the beauty, the worth, the evolutionary purpose, what's actually going on. We're wanting to run from something or we're wanting to fight something. So let's just pass through that panic And then take a moment, like not waste the opportunity. I think that's the core thing, isn't Mm. it? Is, you know, when you mentioned the idea of a superpower, Mm -hmm. the superpower comes into play if we actually listen to what is going on, what our anxiety is trying to tell us. Mm. Now, if we um, panic our way through a panic attack and try to eradicate it, either by numbing ourselves, taking drugs, going off and buying something, going and asking other people Mm. for advice, 
rather than sitting in it, owning it, and actually listening to what our soul is trying to tell us, Mm. you know? That's a far more interesting thing to do. It's productive, and it just makes logical sense. Doesn't it? And I just, I I found one of the most anchoring things that I've learned recently is what happens biologically on a chemical level in your body when you take a longer out-breath than you do an in-breath. Yeah. Because I feel like that's just like, if ever I feel that sense of overwhelm, and I'm, I do feel like it doesn't happen as often as it used to, which is a pleasing thing. But if ever, it's usually social situations and I can just take myself off and just breathe out for longer than I breathe in for five minutes. Yeah. And my, I will tell my brain, well, this must on a level be working. This is like a software update. Yeah. And now I'll be more efficient when I leave this toilet cubicle. It's called maturity. <laughs> it actually is. It's as simple as that. And sometimes I have lots of young people in the audience when I'm talking at various mm. book events. And bless them, you know, they often ask me, what would you tell your younger self? Mm. And what I, you know, often what I say is, you know what, it just gets easier as you get older. Sometimes the only cure is sheer years on this planet Mm. because you start to trust that kind of information just simply because you've rewired your brain over time. The problem is that we as humans, especially our generation who've grown up with all these complicated so-called fixes for things, Mm. we can't trust that a simple breathing exercise works. The other one that people just don't quite believe is that walking works. Mm. And when you start to understand the biology of it, it makes actual perfect sense, better sense than anything else. So again, the part of the brain that controls walking is the same part of the brain that controls the flight or fight response, so anxiety. Now, it's the most antiquated, fusty, old, gnarly part of the brain because <laughs> it's the first bit that emerged when we emerged from mm. the primordial soup, you know, and stood up as humans. Um, and so it makes sense that it's kind of pretty basic. It's a pretty basic piece of, you know, mechanics in the brain. So when we walk, we can only do one thing at once. When we walk in this part of the brain, when we walk, we just can't get anxious. Oh, that explains why I couldn't go for a walk when I used to have panic. I could walk in circles, but I couldn't walk. Yeah, but if you actually just get out and walk. I remember as a teenager, I had a sign on the back of my bedroom door that just said, go climb a tree. And it was just my reminder, and it's probably the equivalent, I would be engaged in climbing a tree. Now, I don't recommend everybody go and do that, Um, although... I still do go and climb trees at my age because I know, I don't know, it just does something for me. I also hitchhike and do a whole range of things just to kind of, you know, plunge into a bit of unknown every now and then. But, um, yeah, if you know that you can just go out and walk even just for 15, 20 minutes and it doesn't have to be fancy, just walk out your front door and round Mm. the block a few times, um, that works. And when I read about the walking, it reminded me, I think we had a very similar um, way we used to deal with our personality types, which was constantly at 100 miles an hour or constantly at rest, i.e. sleeping. Oh, yeah. Knocked knocked out sick. Yeah. Mm. And you, let's talk about magazines because you were were the editor of a magazine. Mm. And that is a big job. And having been there myself as well, I wouldn't necessarily say... I don't know, I'd be interested to know what you think. When I know now what kind of a person I was, I wonder whether it was the best industry for me. Wouldn't change it. No, (laughs) you wouldn't change it. But also, um, I mean, yeah, also 
it's also what we're attracted to. Mm. I mean, I say this in the book, it was the bipolar person in the community that went over the hill when nobody else was game enough to Mm. and came back and went, hey, guys, they've invented this thing called the wheel. Mm. We should get onto it, right? It's kind of part of the deal Mm. that you do do stuff that pushes you to your limits and therefore triggers your anxiety. Mm. I mean, there's something in that, right? Mm. Um, people with high anxiety, I don't know, we, we tend to push, go to the edge. Yeah. Well, it's how you make muscle. You tear it, it heals, it gets bigger. And it's not fun. It's not pretty. Um, actually, I'll qualify that. It's not all, it, it's painful. Mm. It is painful. But I would rather painful than asleep at the wheel, mm. you know, I I choose that every single time. Um, but, yeah, I was 29 when I became editor of Cosmo and, you know, that really took me to the edge. Mm. I had staff who were older than me who really weren't happy about this little upstart from, from nowhere who'd <laughs> never even read the magazine, not <laughs> once. I mean, obviously I did oh, some crash sorry. reading before I arrived. Oh, yeah, I was out of my depth. Um, or and if you'd read the cover lines as well, if that had been your <laughs> homework. Oh, God. oh, I saw it as a sport, um, as oh, in it was a job. Yeah. It was a job. And I I loved it for the first bit. Um, but then a couple of things happened. Um, I had a relationship that was very destructive. Um, and I, yeah, the two things compounded. And then magazine readership and ad revenue was starting to decline. It was mm-hmm. the beginning of that. Um, and so there was a lot of extra pressure, mm-hmm. um, commercial pressure. And it was, I just went too far. But the way I see it now is that I would not have stopped. I mean, I I think my anxiety and what ended up turning into a very bad autoimmune disease uh, was a gift. It it stopped me in my tracks. It was Mm -hmm. like, Sarah, you're not going to um, change course and do something that's more aligned with your values Um, on your own, so we're going to do it for you. Well, I mean, you talk about Hashimoto's and the autoimmune disease, but you went into a hospital and they said, "They, I mean, I'm not exaggerating here, am I? They said you were weeks away from dying. dying. Yeah. That's how, listeners, that's how much Sarah had run herself into the ground. Oh, uh, I was, um, I was a, I was a very uh, fragile, small version of myself by the time I, I, I stopped, well, by the time life stopped me. Um, Were you disconnected from your body? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it was, I'd always used my body. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always a really great, powerful vehicle to get things done. Mm-hmm. I was a mountain bike racer. I mean, mind you, while I was sick with an autoimmune disease, instead of going, something's not right here, I went, fire up, Sarah. What's going on? You're becoming mm-hmm. lazy. And so I, I did 24-hour mountain bike races. I would run 10 kilometres and back, what, six miles and back um, each day. Did you get up in the middle of the night at 2 a.m. and run, throughout, run through Florence? Oh, yeah, I did that once. <laughs> I love that you're like, oh, yeah, no, I did do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I sometimes need people who've read the book to remind me of stuff that I did, yeah. Um, I... Um, yeah, and then I was doing sand running races. I was doing a whole heap of stuff. And, of course, drinking a bottle or two of red wine every night, cups of coffee in the morning, right. and um, I was wasting away. Yeah. The, I don't know if you – if I, I think I mentioned this in the book. The, the funny irony is we were doing a story in Cosmo on this new egg timer test, which 
You do talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it had just been invented and it was being introduced into Australia into, via one university and nobody in the office was at the right point in their cycle to do the test as a guinea pig run except for me. So I did it and the test came back, these sort of, you know, world experts in fertility came back and went, small problem, you're infertile and you're going through premature menopause and I was 30 four by this stage and um, of course I just ignored that and just didn't want to face it and I was so caught up in the relationship and trying to sort out this job and it took me six months of continuing to do mountain bike racing etc etc until yeah I finally collapsed um, and withdrew and took myself off to an army shed in the forest for a year and a half. Wow okay well we'll Mm. get back to the shed. But when you found, when you got that information, phone call or email, just saying, by the way, no eggs and you're in um, yeah. early menopause, and you sit on it, did it re- did it register? Did no. you just not have the brain space for it? Was there was there that level of overwhelm that it was yeah. like no room at the inn? Yeah, and also I didn't know what to do. Mm. I really didn't know what to do next. And like I said, my body was an enabler. And mm. I'd always been able to sort of just, you know, when people say, oh, you've got to do this, this and this, or you've got to uh, sleep X amount of hours a, a night, I ignored all of that information. I was like, oh, no, I can push through not that. Not me. Yeah, not me. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, which is partly upbringing, growing up in the country mm. where you just push through things. And I had lots of brothers, mm. you know, it's like, oh, come on, Sarah, you know, you can jump over that. <laughs> just push harder, you know. You can climb that tree. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so there's an element of running yourself into the ground, obviously. I mean, it, probably you look back at it and you think it was so obvious. Yeah. Um, but w- w- who were you nurturing? Were you nurturing anyone? Was it related? Like you said you about this relationship. Were you looking after other people, hoping that would nurture you? Do you know that's what I mean? That's an interesting question, yeah, because where does that outpouring go? Um, I suppose, I mean, I had... A lot of, you know, I had 16 staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very focused on them and, and um, I wasn't a very good boss by the end of it. Um, yeah, the boyfriend, trying to sustain that, trying to steer that, trying to micromanage it out of, you know, um, mm. disaster. Um, and, you know, I'm the big sister in a large family, so there was always that as an outlet. Mm. Uh yeah, but I certainly wasn't nurturing myself. Mm. That notion of self-care, I'm one of those people that rolls my eyes at and finds it very hard to kind of sit with. However, as I've got older, I realise it doesn't ha- it's actually not a – I've always thought it was a self-centred, selfish thing. Mm. And my my sort of energy has always been steered towards expanding out to the world and helping out in the world mm. rather than wasting time on one person, me. Mm. Um, but I realise, especially as you get older, don't you? I mean, it's like if I don't look after this engine, I'm not going to be able to do the mm. work that I need to do. Yeah. So it became more of a responsibility. Um, and I think A-types were often like that. Um, mm. And I conflate A-types and, and anxiety quite often because they do tend to go hand in hand. Yeah. Um, and some of the techniques I use in the book for giving advice is framing it um, as something that you do to, in the, to help other people yeah. around you. Mm-hmm. So it's a responsibility, right? You've got to do this. Mm-hmm. You've got to get your life sorted, you know, because otherwise you're just going to throw it all onto other people. So mm-hmm. come on, let's fire up. And also we have 
often got an energy and an ability and a sense of deep, deep care um, that can be utilised for amazing things. Yeah. So come on, get your act together so that we can get on with creating really good stuff. Or, or misuse. That that was definitely my experience because I didn't have any boundaries and that was part of low self-esteem. Yeah. Um, all of that good stuff yeah. went elsewhere. That's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. It either goes elsewhere and then... To be honest, you tend to get anxiety to tell you that you're going in the wrong direction. Right, yeah. Anxiety is often like a big wrong way go back sign. 100% agree. So if you're that kind of person, you're sending your energy off to the wrong people, Mm. the wrong things, wrong career path, the wrong set of values. Mm. Anxiety is often the thing that's going to tell you that. So you've got to listen to it. Um, But also if you're sending all your energy into your anxiety, that's also a waste of your years on this planet. Mm. You know, and the, something that triggers or that resonates with a lot of people is the phrase that I use, and I think I just mentioned it previously, is just do anxiety once. Yeah. You know, don't get anxious about being anxious. So, mm. all right, here we And I have a conversation with myself. I'm like, all right, here we go. We're going through anxiety. Mm. This is what it looks like. Yep, I've done this before. Oh, okay, this is a new flavour this time, but really what we're going to, you know, and I just kind of talk myself through it. Mm. And then it passes and something, you know what, something really good generally happens. Mm. You usually get some sort of feedback from the universe. I know that's going to sound really woo-woo to some no. people. At the Emma Gun show, we're here for it. Yeah, great, <laughs> great. Um, I'll give an example. I was just in Tokyo and I was overstimulated and to the hilt. Like my, I was just a nervous wreck. And so I had to give up one day and I just went, all right, my next mission right now, Sarah, is just to find a public toilet somewhere. <laughs> and as soon as I let go of all my plans and my micromanaging of going, you know, I literally walked around a corner and came across this little room with two people in it and they said would you like to come in and listen to some music and have a glass of natural wine and I was just like there are these fairy people that you know came and rescued me and it was their lounge room and they were musicians classical pianists and they composed this beautiful music and they said we're having a listening party and it's just we're playing our music and we've got this organic um, Japanese wine and nobody else was in there. And I sat there and it was just beautiful. The sun was streaming in. It was this tiny little alleyway in Tokyo. And I was just like, okay, this is how, you know, I was reminded yeah. this is how it works. Life comes and holds you when you do make the decisions that are in alignment. Mm. It's a simple, it's, it, you join the river rather than try to put up embankments and boulders to mm. re-steer it. And um, it happens all the time. A second example in Japan is I was, I'd organised to go forest bathing, which I was really interested in learning about. Ooh, what and is it, forest bathing? Well, it's, it's similar to what we were talking about with walking. So the Japanese identified that everybody's getting sick from heart disease and so on from city life. And um, there's a tradition, in well, part of the Shinto tradition is to go out into nature and the Shinto tradition is very nature-based. It's mm-hmm. a nature-based form of spirituality. And so they did a bunch of studies to show how trees emit certain, I think this, they're particular molecules that trigger the right T fighter cells. The, the negative ions. No, it's not quite that, but that is one yeah. lot of studies as well with the 
positive ions mm-hmm. being stress and negative ions can counteract it. So they did a whole range of studies and uh, set up this sort of institute of forest therapists. And um, there's certain zones throughout Japan where you can go and do this type of therapy and they're meant to have certain energetic um, sort of powers. Wow. Yeah. Um, and South Korea are t- totally into it. And, of course, L.A., um, but um, so I went off with the big scientist and I'd organised to meet up with her and we'd organised a a, um, a translator. One of the great things about being pol- bipolar is you're a great hustler. <laughs> so I'd hustled the bejesus out of this situation and, of course, the day before I had, a, I had a freak out, I was hyperstimulated, couldn't cope, hadn't slept, didn't want to face people, was about to cancel it, right up until five minutes before I needed to be on the train to get out there in time, I was about to cancel. And then I went, no, Sarah, go where the invite is, go where the flow is. Mm. They said, yes, they're making you a bento box. They're excited to see (laughs) you. Yeah. Um, So I just got out there and again, I was rewarded because an American Japanese woman joined us. She turned out to be the most beautiful woman. I also had no accommodation for the following night because of a hotel stuff up. And first thing she said is, why don't you come and stay with me tomorrow night? And I just went, oh, there we go. And she was, she's the most beautiful human. And you know how you just meet humans on your travels from the other side of the world. Mm. And she and I have been emailing every day since. And she's decided off the back of all of this and the interest I got from posting about it that, and she's a botanist. She said, why don't I become a a forest therapist. So she's going to France to study it and she's going to come back and help this Japanese woman Mm. and they're going to create a business around it. Two women in their 40s creating a business around it and um, off the back of this interaction that we had. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, the point is when I do let go and um, talk to myself in this way and allow for the anxiety to do its thing, life, beautiful people come and hold Mm. me. They appear. I don't know about you, but I have often thought that the way that the overwhelm manifests in my brain with all of those thoughts is uh, a survival mechanism and it's troubleshooting. Okay. And it's, if I can imagine all 6,401,000 scenarios that could potentially happen, mm-hmm. then I will be prepared. Yes. But there's no way that you can possibly compute that. No, no, that is often what's going on with mm. that kind of non-somatic anxiety mm. that I mentioned. Yeah. Um, the only thing you can do is walk away from it and trust. So it's, it's to do with decisions because yeah. if, you, if you were in a calm place where anxiety wasn't mucking with your decision-making processes, you'd probably consider two options and choose between two instead of the 1,400,000 and whatever it is that, you're, <laughs> that you compute or try to compute in a, a nanosecond, mm. right? Um, and it's a bit of advice I learned at Cosmo where I literally couldn't decide between an Angelina in a red dress, Angelina in a green dress option. I I mean, it's really important stuff, right? Where you print off the covers and you walk into the room holding each going, which one's better? I know, I know. And it's like you never believe anyone anyway. You know, like, oh, no, they don't know, so I'll go and ask sales, you know. Um, But I took it to my publisher and I just said, I don't know. I don't know how to decide. And she just looked at them and went, the red one. And I went, why? And she said, she said, darling, I know you've looked at them backwards and forwards and you've considered every possible scenario. Both options are going to be great. 
So I don't care which one you go with, go with that one. Make Mm. it the right decision. Yes. And this is what we've got to have faith in. So some of the big part of the book actually is a whole heap of decision-making trust exercises. Mm. And you start to really realise that it doesn't matter and you've got to retrain. The anxious need to retrain ourselves around that. It's almost like an obligation. We've got to get better at making decisions because that's when we come undone. Mm. You know, that hyperthinking, it's all about options and trying to decipher between Mm. different, you know, options. And if you accept that it's just that the part of the brain that's super sensitive, when we're anxious, it can't work, Mm. you know. Um, So what you've got to do is the breathing, Mm -hmm. the walking, the whatever it is to dial down the anxiety and then you can make a decision and once you've made a decision, the anxiety also abates, Mm. you know. And you actually describe, and I'm looking at my notes here because I want to get it right, you describe anxiety as in two ways. There are two types and I love the way that you've described it. The first one is fair enough anxiety and the second is disordered anxiety. Would you mind explaining to the listeners what the distinction is? Yeah, so fair enough anxiety is anxiety that makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? So public speaking, um, I don't know, flying, people who've got a fear of flying, it kind of makes sense Mm -hmm. being up in a piece of tin. How do they stay up there? Yeah, in the (laughs) sky, you know. Um, Going to a job interview, um, going on a first date, that's all fair enough Anxiety, mm-hmm. disordered anxiety, is where it uh, it really doesn't necessarily have a cause. Mm. Like there's no direct cause and effect, you know, and so, um, or at least not on the surface level. Mm. And that's the thing, right? Because there actually is when we start to break down the evolutionary premise behind those of us who have heightened sensitivities and therefore heightened anxiety Mm. or disordered anxiety. So um, it's not always obvious what the cause and effect is. And sometimes even even there isn't a cause. Sometimes there's just anxiety in my bones. And that's a phrase I Mm. use. It's just in my bones. It's crept in for whatever kind of reason and it's in there and I'm deeply, deeply anxious. And there's no point trying to find a cause what I've got to do is modulate, ease my way out of it, and along the way keep reminding myself that there probably is a reason for this, you mm-hmm. know, and it's probably just a an emissions of my neural activity and my, you know, my nervous activity, um, which is part of my conditioning. And I don't want to make it sound like, you know, those of us with you know, anxiety disorders are, are super special, you know, where we're particularly, you know, unique and all of this kind of thing. Um, but I think there needs to be a sort of a a shift of the dialogue from disorder to a, a thing that just is. Mm. Some of us have asthma, some of us have green eyes, and some of us are born, 1.4% of us are born with some of these conditions. And I, yeah, and I feel with anxiety, I feel when I talk on this show and with my most excellent listeners about the journey I've been on or the journey they've been on when we discuss on email and DM, sometimes I get moments where I feel a bit, I feel a bit daft because I feel like I've had to go on a really big journey <laughs> to get where some people are naturally. And then I feel really stupid for having exposed myself as having to go to school to learn yeah. how to like cope. I, uh, in the book I refer to life naturals, mm, Yeah, yeah. you know, like people who just kind of, I don't know, they fit in, mm. 
You know, they're, they're the people in that group of chimpanzees at the centre of the clan. They found the warm spot and they can rely on, you know, the neurotics out on the outer limbs to mm. warn them if something goes wrong. You know what? It's just your lottery. And they might not have the same experiences that people like you have mm. via your sensitivities. Mm. I mean, Stephen Fry did a documentary on bipolar and I think there was something like 12 people in the cast and crew and the talent who had bipolar and he asked them, would you give it up if you had the choice? And they all but one said absolutely no way because, you know, once you've experienced it, mm. the depths, would you give it up? I mean, that's what I've got to remind ourselves of. I know that it's my anxiety. That also means that I can look at a baby or I can watch a movie and see something in it that just gets me, grips me. Um, and I know that it's my experience, my tussle with the internal dialogues and my demons mm. and blah, blah, blah that allow me to access that space, that deep, deep space. Um, but but what you were saying about the fact that you sometimes talk about this stuff and it's like, oh, my God, I've got to go back to 101, you know, junior school to learn all of this mm. again. I As was, a 41-year-old woman. Yeah. Well, I was speaking with my 42-year-old friend in Japan when I was having this moment yeah. looking for a loo. And, um, and she said to me, she's a very wise woman. She's, she's had, you know, her, her, her time with anxiety. And she said, oh, but Sarah, don't, you can't compare yourself with, with these, all these people that you keep mentioning who've got their shit together. You're not like them. Mm. You're just not going to be. You've got a completely different life. Look at the job you've got. Look at the stuff that you do. Mm. There's just no point. And, and you know what? You've got to sometimes talk to those people when you're feeling daft mm. to remind yourself that everybody has their different journey, you mm. know, um, and we all need each other. I mean, this is the wonderful thing about this book, I did not honestly expect this. It was the greatest gift, and Emma, I think you'll and listeners will appreciate this little kind of factlet. Um, a whole heap of people came out, like in the street, in bookshops, you know, online, and said to me, "I don't have anxiety." I mean, I can't imagine somebody who can say that. But anyway, there's a lot of people out there that are really honest about it. Mm. I don't suffer anxiety. However, my husband or my sister or my wife. Um, really do. And your book got me to finally understand. I had a farmer when I first mm. released the book, a farmer traveled overnight to come to one of my events and he was in his sixties and he'd been estranged from his now 21 year old daughter for two years. And he was in tears. And he said to me, I read your book and I finally understand my daughter and I've been able to reach out to her and we now have a relationship again, and I, you know, and I never understood. And then I had a couple come up to me in a bookshop. The guy came up to me and said, um, I broke up from my fiance because her anxiety was too much for me. She had OCD and I didn't get it. And then she asked me to read your book a year after we broke up. And she said, um, and we're getting married next week, and that's her over there. And we all just started crying. Oh, wow. And he just said, I, I get it now. And I think that's just one of the most beautiful things is that people without anxiety mm. have read this, and when they start to understand it, they really want to support, you know, those of us who feel mm. like we're, we're still at stage 101, you know. And um, that's, I mean... You know, aside from the fact that it's wonderful for us because we feel understood, mm. I mean, isn't it a beautiful level of connection, mm. you know? Um, and I just think that's a, just a wonderful part of humanity. 
Mm. So, it, and it reminds us that none of us, we've all got our, our thing. Mm. And the challenge is to, is to live our, what, allotted 80 to 95 years on this planet in the most... When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Nourishing, character-filled way possible. Mm. And do we want to stay trapped, those of us with anxiety, in this medical model where we're disordered mm. and we've got to be dialed down, toned down, dumbed down, you know, with, with medication. Because you've taken medication before, is that yeah, right? Yeah, and I go on and off it still. Mm-hmm. I have to use it at times. Um, I have to have triggers to remind me when I need to use it because it's really not obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll be not coping and I'll come across the script for um, some of my medication. i go, oh, that's right, that's what I do when I get like this. You right, know? yeah. I actually forget after all these years of writing about it, talking about it, I literally forget. And I've got some friends who are gra- brave enough, bless them, who will come and tell me, hey, Sarah, you, you, you're not coping. Mm. Um, you need to do something, you know. Because we don't see it, do we? Because we keep thinking we can fix it. Yeah, I mean, I was, one of the questions I was going to ask you and I was sort of on the way here thinking, oh, God, how do I, how do I wrestle with, with this question? So I'm just going to go yes. into it. But did you have any resentment towards the people who were closer to you? And obviously I'm projecting because I, I think about this a bit. I feel like in my situation, it was so obvious I was on the brink of a breakdown. I feel like I, feel like I had asked for help already. Mm. I feel like I had said the things that if I'd heard people I love saying to them, saying them, I would have seen red flags and warning signs. And no, no one came to my rescue. Yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Mm. It's a, an unhealthy and ugly resentment. Mm. And I say that as someone who's, you know, got it in bucket yeah. loads myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I do feel that. And my answer, I guess, to the question, which is, you know, how do I feel, how do I explain that in mm. others, um, is that, uh, well, it's twofold. One, we're hypersensitive to it and that's what we do. I mean, I think I've got a, I've got to pay a chapter, a dedicated chapter um, to leave open, to, you know, for others to read mm-hmm. that basically, and for when you're not feeling so good about yourself, that basically mm-hmm. explains why having an anxious person around you is not a bad thing. And it's basically because we care. Mm-hmm. We are the people that will remember that we'll have the weather contingency plan if there's a group picnic. We are the ones who will remember who's gluten-free at the group dinner party. Mm-hmm. We're, you know... 
Mm-hmm. And that's just the deal. So we 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 are hyperattentive and we're also pains in the ass as a result and <laughs> the world has to put up with that. So, um, But the other thing that I think is important to remember is that quite often, and I, I don't want to project onto you, but I'll talk about myself, I'm a very forceful person who has developed a whole range of uh, protective mechanisms to ensure that nobody comes near me when I'm being anxious because I'm usually reacting by putting up a whole heap of defensive processes. So a lot of my weird anxious behaviours are actually my coping mechanisms Mm. and I don't want anyone to come and take them away from me. So my OCD, for instance, which plays out at night through a whole heap of rituals, I don't want somebody to come and tell me to stop doing that Mm. because I will not cope. The problem is far deeper. Um, So... I have a whole lot of seductive behaviours, um, coping mechanisms, bravado, um, diatribe that basically says to the world, do not come near me mm. when I'm like this. And that's what we've got to remember. Mm. Family and friends grew up with us. Um, they see a, a mechanism. They, they, they see a big wall. Mm. Um, and I know... I probably would push through that further because I've known what it's like to be on the other side, but the life naturals don't know it. They're like, Mm. well, if you wanted it, you'd ask for it, you know, Um, and we just don't operate that way. And I know my parents had no capacity Mm. to be able to uh, listen to what I was saying, particularly Mm. as a teenager. And I know that even back then uh, I was a bit like, don't come near me. Don't tell me that I can't do that. And I hid a lot, mm. but I expect them to be them to be able to see my pain through all of that. Yeah. But they were young when they had me and they grew up, they grew up together mm-hmm. through their sort of late teens, early twenties with me, mm-hmm. you know? And so, so yeah, I think that's something worth remembering is probably the work that we need to do is, is how much of what we're doing is actually um, telling people to go away, you know? Yeah, it's funny, and it seems an odd time to mention the film Twilight, <laughs> but I'm going to. Yes. Because Bella's power is that she can put up a force field. Yeah. And yeah. I remember reading the book and thinking, I think I unintentionally do that. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of women of our era do that mm. because to deal with the deep sensitivities that we might have and then still achieve in, in a particular sort of framework... Um, we've got to we've got to put up a lot of force fields mm. as a protective mechanism um, for very good reason mm. because um, often our symptoms uh, often our anxiety are, are coping mechanisms. Yeah, you know um, the bulimic her problem or his problem is not about um, food or mm. weight. Their problem is anxiety. They throw food down on top of it to quash it mm-hmm. and settle themselves. Take away that coping mechanism without providing a new coping, better coping mechanism, that's mm-hmm. a horrible thing, you know, and a bulimic will defend their, their right to, to binge and purge mm-hmm. um, unless there's something else that can replace it. Ditto with just about every other, you know, anxious disorder. Well, it's the bottle of wine when you get home, isn't it? Getting the nice buzz. Yeah, yeah. That's that's a very straightforward mm. one. A lot of them are more seductive and odd mm-hmm. and hard to decipher. So, yeah. But it is. It's very lonely um, when you feel like you're communicating, when you're saying, please help me. Mm. Um, 
And that's one of the questions I also get asked a lot is what can I do to help a loved one who's got anxiety? And um, I love the fact that I get asked this, Mm -hmm. you know, because I think that's just, I'm always blown away. I mean, you care. You're actually wanting to know this stuff. Okay, well, I'll tell you. Um, And I actually had to think about it before I wrote it in the book. Mm -hmm. But one of the best things that you can do is make decisions for us. So if you know someone with really bad anxiety and they're freaking out, probably the worst thing you can do is go, what would you like me to do? Yes, don't give them a choice. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) oh, should we go to dinner or should we go to a movie? Would that make you feel better? No. Because, again, going back to that science around the decision-making part of the brain, the anxious part of the brain, when we're anxious, we cannot make decisions. If you make us make a decision, we'll just, we'll go off the handle. So, um Yeah, the best thing you can do is to make a decision for us. And I remember my friend Rick, he said to me, he rang me and he knew where I was at and he said, right, Dal, we're going to the movies, we're going to meet you at the corner, the traffic lights, and then we're going for curry afterwards, we'll see you at six o'clock, be there. And I was like, oh, my God, thank you so much, thank you so much. (laughs) And in the workplace, you can do that with colleagues who have anxiety and Mm -hmm. I get asked this a lot as well, which I think is just wonderful that people are – wanting to know how to help the anxious in the workplace is if there's somebody who, you know, can't decide between an Angelina red dress, Angelina green dress, <laughs> sit down with them and help them make the decision. Yeah. You know, um, or say, what are the options? And the person will describe it in absolute micro detail and mm-hmm. then go, okay, you've thought this through clearly from what you're saying, option A is the best one. Mm-hmm. We're going to do that. Off you go. Be decisive. Be decisive even just for five minutes and then that person will probably make a miraculous recovery. Mm. And kindness. I had a friend phone me the other day who is not normally somebody who exhibits sign of panic or anxiety. And so it took me a little bit by surprise. Yeah, right. And I said, well, I'll be over soon and I'll come and stroke your hair. Yes. And they didn't want me to go around, not because they couldn't. It was a working day and it wasn't possible. But actually they said, actually, I know now that's what I need. Thank yeah. you very much. Even the fact that you've offered that. Yeah. And, but you didn't even offer it as an option. You said you are going to, even if it was slightly facetious because it was a working day, mm-hmm. but the definitiveness mm-hmm. and the, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the ultimate kindness is when you just, it's non-negotiable. Sorry, yeah. I'm coming to do this. And I'm doing it partly for me, you know, as as well as you and just for the goodness of life. Mm. This needs to be done. You, as, as an editor, and I can only go on my previous experience of having worked with editors, but it's a, it's such a big, tense job, and it is the ultimate in my in my career. It's yeah. the ultimate juggling or spinning plates role that yes. I've ever seen. And we celebrate type A personality traits, mm. and in order to be perceived, I think, as a good editor, one has to exhibit type A personality traits. Yeah. Yet it is. It goes so hand in hand. We celebrate it, but actually, in your case as well, and I've seen it with friends, is it's it's a downward spiral. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I I, I sort of um, I think with depression over the last 10, 20 years, we've come to sort of accept mm-hmm. depression as something that's a disability and yeah. it needs to be treated seriously. Now, when I was writing the book. This was the case. However, I do think it's shifted, and it's shifted certainly here in the UK Mm. in the last one or two years. But up until very recently, anxiety was something that you wore as a badge of honour, right? Mm. You know, 
so how are you? Oh, I'm so busy. I'm so stressed. It's, oh, good. You must be really productive and doing great things. It's You're sort of, better than me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's like a competitive thing. Like, yeah. how stressed are you? How many, <laughs> how many hours sleep did you get? And we all do it, right? So anxiety is something that um, is worn as something... Uh, yeah, it's such a fine line, isn't it? it, it it's celebrated. Mm. Anxiety is celebrated in a neoliberal culture where um, the individual is sort of, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and it's all about personal gain and all mm. of this kind of thing. And our heroes are people that have forged ahead and done amazing things for themselves mm-hmm. in that A-type kind of way. So if you're anxious, it means that you really must be working damn hard at whatever it is to pull yourself up in the capitalist system. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have these keep calm, carry on cups and T-shirts and all that kind of thing. And it's almost, it sort of plays into that, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, be anxious and everything, but just take this coffee mug as a bit of a joke, you Plow know. on. Yeah, yeah. Keep calm and carry mm-hmm. on. Um so, yeah, I think that's something that needs to be recognised as well, mm. that we celebrate some aspects of, you know, being able to hyper-toggle, micromanage, mm. um, multitask. All of those things are celebrated in our culture and, of course, they feed into um, a sort of an anxious uh, atmosphere. And what I think we're experiencing is not so much heightened um, cases of disordered anxiety, but what we're seeing is that there's more intense forms of fair enough anxiety. Right, right. Because a lot of our behaviours are emulating the anxious experience. So toggling between screens, mm-hmm. running between activities, um, you know, air travel, mm-hmm. all these frenetic activities actually emulate the flight or fight response in our entities. Mm. So even though we might not have an anxious trigger or there might not even be a disordered anxiety thing going on, we're living out like we're high-octane anxious all the time. Yeah. And so we become anxious through our behaviours, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Mm. And it's a difficult It's a difficult uh, treadmill. It's a difficult thing to get off, I think. Yeah. Because if, you're, if that is celebrated, if you are seen as... You, it's like um, the example I always use with friends is... As soon as somebody loses weight, first thing you ask is, how did you do it? Yeah. Oh and it's celebrated. Yeah. But that weight loss might not have been done via healthy means. No. But it's celebrated mm-hmm. regardless. Mm-hmm. And the same, I think, with the type A behavior and the overachieving. Yeah. And it's, it's a hard. very, yeah, it's a very, um, I just remember all throughout my teens, 20s, 30s, early 40s, having this sense that if, you know, the, the question hung over me, what if I stopped, right? Okay. What if I stopped? And the answer was the whole stack of dominoes will fall over. That, that is how I operated. Mm-hmm. I did not feel I could stop because I thought that every aspect of my life would collapse in a heap. And our generation, particularly of women, and I suspect you have a fair few women our age listening, mm-hmm. and hopefully you'll, you'll all understand, is that, and I presume it was the same here in the UK as in Australia, if you're A-type, your teachers latched onto you. They mm-hmm. really pushed you through the system. I was pushed in a co-ed school to be better than the boys at maths and science. As soon as I showed aptitude for it, I was pushed through to, you know, represent the school in maths competitions and all of this kind of thing. And, yeah. um, you know, we were very much the generation who had to 
have it all, but essentially that meant doing it all. Mm. So I think it's very much emphasised amongst amongst women of our age. Oh, 100%. Mm. And now we've sort of, I don't know about you, but I feel like I had years of being tightly wound and tense. Yeah. Like there was a constant vice-like grip going on internally. Yeah. In order to survive. And it's taken a long time to get there, but now it's like the line from Dune, I shall bend like a reed in the wind. It's just about being relaxed. Yeah, and that takes practice. And like Mm. I said at the beginning of this podcast, sheer years on the planet. Mm. I love getting older, Um, apart from creaky hips and grey hair and and all this kind of thing. But um, it it really... um, you know, there's a lot of discussion actually at the moment about the second half of your life mm-hmm. and, and what that's going to look like. And um, as some of the listeners might know, and I think, Emma, you know, is I I shut down my I Quit Sugar business um, exactly a year ago. It was May 31st, so over a year ago. But um, And I gave all the money to charity. And that I've had to do a few things like that, a few renegade things mm. to break the cycle of the first part of my life. And oh, now interesting. Because mm. I was going to ask you about I Quit Sugar because that was, you wrote books, but it was about um, <laughs> the banana skin cake. I love this, <laughs> like using everything. But it was about quitting sugar because sugar is not great for us. Yeah. It, I think there's plenty, I think every listener will have, heard mm. that at some yes. point but this turned into a mega business this wasn't just like yeah a side hustle this was an industry I had a yeah I had I had a digital business that I built and it was a platform um that was set up to get uh, you know it was actually 1.5 million people in the end off sugar Jeez. and um it was a program I had 25 staff I had as you say supermarket products etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. um and uh yeah I just I I'd made a commitment when I first started the business and I got an accountant and I said okay in five years time he said he asked for my financial goals and I said I don't do financial goals like I don't spend money I don't care about it you mm. know I don't own a car I can go for almost two years without buying anything but toilet paper and food. I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> yeah. I've, well, I know this because my accountant at the end of the year says, now, Sarah, can we get this right? You have spent this much? Like, did you buy any clothes? I'm like, no. I don't think I've bought any clothes for, you know, 13 or 14 months. Listeners, for context, Sarah is looking very stylish in the room right now. <laughs> She's not wearing a burlap sack. <laughs> I still, I wear clothes. From, and she's like, I would. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, like I mentioned before, I lived out of one suitcase for eight mm. years and sometimes I would live out of one day pack, like a carry-on pack for five, six months at a time traveling around. Um, so when I say I don't spend money, I'd spend it on airfare and carbon miles, chewing through some serious carbon miles, which <laughs> is not great, but it was part of doing my business, I suppose, and mm. I rationalised it as hopefully the, the, the benefits would outweigh the, the negativities of travelling like that. But, um, yeah, so in terms of, I mean, I'm talking about sort of having done a few renegade mm. things to bust the rut. Yeah. And I made this commitment to my accountant. He said, what are your financial goals? I don't know. He said, make something up. And I said, all right, in five years' time, I want to have le- earned enough money 
to live off the basic wage, CPI'd, you know, indexed, um, until I'm 94. And he went, okay. So I actually worked to that financial goal um, rather than wanting to earn, you know, go and buy a Land Rover and have all these other goals. I just wanted to set myself up with sort of invest the money I had so that Mm -hmm. it could tick over at a very modest level, which I can live within. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I reached that goal literally to the week and, you know, my accountant, Harry met up with me to show me the charts. And I was like, are you serious? You actually took me seriously five years ago. And he went, oh, well, yes. You know, it's your only goal, Sarah. Yeah, I know. That's right. <laughs> he, he's quite sweet, my accountant. He reads lots of books to try to understand the way that I do my business and the way I sort of fi- financially prioritize things. He finds it quite freaky, bless him. Um, he's a, an accountant, so, you know. Um, so when I yeah, reached that goal, I just went, right, well, I'm not going to become one of those sad sacks that gets the Volvo to get the Land Rover, you know, and then has to have, have the, you know, Rolls Royce mm-hmm. or something. And then what do you know? I find myself in my 60s playing golf with creaky hips. Like, I do not want to be that person, you know. Um, so I I went, okay, we're selling the business. And so I went through that process and it took a year of tyre kicking from large media organisations who wanted to buy it. But that would mean compromising my values because I'd never taken advertising revenue. I was one of the rare sites that never took um, advertising um, because I didn't believe that that was part of the ethos. I needed to make sure the message was pure so Mm -hmm. people could come to it when they were ready, not be sold to. Um, So it was a bunch of things like that. And I said, you know what, my time on this planet should never be so compromised. So I made the decision, right, I'm shutting it down. I sold off all the assets. So I sold the recipes, I sold the content, I sold the images, the technology uh, in a two-week process. I put a timeline to it to for due diligence. I put a price to it and I said, no tire kicking, this is it. It was the most free thing I've ever done. People came to the party, they got it. They then kicked in an extra bit to the charity. And now this charity is set up and gradually, gradually people are starting to get it. At first people were freaked out. They couldn't trust that anyone would want to do that. Mm. And I was quite hurt by that because my big thing was, oh, I'm going to get people really excited about doing the same thing. Mm. Let's get rid of our money and share it around, you know. Mm. Um, But gradually it's really starting to gain momentum in its own natural organic way, which is the only way anything ever works. Mm. So that kind of thing, sometimes maybe we all, we don't need to do what I did necessarily, but I think sometimes we do need to do something renegade to bust Mm. our way out of a rut, you know, and it often happens at this stage when people are in their 40s. Well, I think one's perspectives change when you get to what might be the halfway point. Mm -hmm. The sort of... I know. It's not a run-up. It's not a rehearsal anymore. (laughs) Yes, yeah. Do you remember as a kid or even in your 30s, you'd still go, oh, this is good practice for the real thing? (laughs) That's how I used to rationalise bad experiences or Mm. tough experiences. Oh, this will... This will be really good for for when I hit the real part of my life. And then you reach, yes, yeah. reach your forties, and you go, "If this is not it, what am I here for?" Yeah, you you you. There's much less room for nonsense. Yeah, this is not a run up. This is not the dress rehearsal. This is the real thing, mm. or bust. You know. Yeah. But somebody might have listened to that story. Some one of the listeners might have might have legitimately got a little bit of anxiety listening to the idea of you giving away mm-hmm. the company. 
Yeah. Um, well, do you want me to ease some of that anxiety by telling yes, you please. what happened next? Yes, please. So a bit like my Japanese stories. So when I did that, I then put up this wage manifesto on my website and very firmly said, because I've given my I Quit Sugar money, and I've also got an aspect that continues to raise money for the charity. Um, I won't go into the details. You can read it on the website. but um, Link will be in the show notes, isn't it? Yeah, thank you. And, um, and then I outlined that I now make my money from public speaking, from keynote speaking, which is a fairly big industry mm. in Australia and you get paid quite well and outlined my fee, it's non-negotiable. So if you can't afford it, don't worry about it. And um, and then, of course, I also go and do stuff for charity where I feel that it's worthwhile. But mm. if I'm talking to a corporation, they can cough up the cash. So mm. um, not a single person has questioned that. And ironically, I have been booked out ever since I made that announcement by, wait for it, banks, superannuation companies and insurance companies. <laughs> And I'm like, you realise <laughs> I gave my money away and I kind of encourage, not encourage it, but try to sort of, you know, inspire people to think about placing less value on money. And they're like, oh, no, that's great. It's really inspiring. So I've actually had more, how can I put it? So I've had easier and more flowing prosperity since I've shut the business. So I'm in no ways living on the, you know, the bread line. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got more than enough. Um, I still go for very long periods without buying anything and I still don't own a car and I walk and I ride a bike everywhere and I still own one pair of shorts and six pairs of underpants and, you know, um, and, uh, but yeah, there's a lot more flow. Is that different from how it used to be when you were in the magazine world? Because the reason why I did the whole, and pardon me, what now? Is because in magazines, dresses get sent in, things get, you know, gifts oh, get yeah. sent, all of that. Were you never the person who took it home? Oh, I never took it home. Oh, and dear. and I, I contacted, <laughs> and I've got a thing now on my website, because of course, you know, with the social media following you, get people wanting you to be an influencer. Yeah, yeah. I paste it everywhere. I do not do any paid for endorsements. I don't do sponsorships. Please do not send me anything mm. and respect my minimalist principles. And I did that at Cosmo. So I got, I've got i never owned a handbag in my life and I got offered designer handbags. Yeah, as an editor, my Jiminy. And I would say, no, thank you, no, that's not my principles. So, but you know what? What it, it, Did it bamboozle people? Yes. Mm. Yes. I've been told... Yeah, it did. It did. But you know what is absolutely lovely, um, again, to, you know, abate people's anxiety is that a lot of those advertisers and P- PRs that I worked with, you know, all that time ago, um, they now come and work. F- like one of the really big, she worked for Gucci. Mm-hmm. She was one of the people that offered me handbags. She approached me a couple of years ago and said, Sarah, you're working charity stuff. I want to do more meaningful stuff. What can I do to help you? So my latest charity project that I've been working on, which has raised a lot of money for women in shelters, um, she did all the PR for it for free. So what ends up happening Mm. is you end up getting a much easier life. The amount that I would have had to pay her (laughs) would probably have been worth a couple of handbags. You know what I mean? Like... (laughs) If you're going to add it up that way. but Big handbags. Yeah, that's right. I just kind of think um, we can play, think, we can dance this dance differently and it's time that we mm. do. Um, it's time that we live in a different way because we all know it, 
this way is not sustainable. Mm. We all know we're all waking up to it. Um, and um, I think our souls are crying out for a different way. And look, I've had, I don't have children. I don't have a partner. I've got lots of free time to think about these things. Mm. And so I'm very happy. And it's, I say this with first, we make the beast beautiful. I just want, I, I, the conversation I wanted to have about anxiety and, and, and about the pain at our core wasn't happening. So mm. I figured I'll just go and start it. I'll go and start, I'll just go first. Mm. And um, I suppose it's the same with this sort of stuff around money. You know, if it just only takes a couple of people, you know, to sort of do something a bit different and then people start to emulate it. And, mm. you know, with the sugar thing, when I first came out saying sugar's not great, I was trolled. I was, the Daily Mail went after me pretty much every week um, mm. saying that I was promoting a fad diet, that I was cutting out a food group, that there was nothing <laughs> wrong with sugar, um, you know, and um, what do you know? nobody questions the problems with sugar these days, you know. Um, so Because money can be made from sh- products that don't have sugar in now. Well, bigger if, industry. Yeah, that's true, actually. <laughs> You're right. Um, but great. Mm. The agitation from people like me, and there's all kinds of voices in, in this area now, um, it gradually pushed the, the dial, you know. Mm. So, yeah. I think it's incredibly interesting and it's reminding me about something Oprah said recently where I think it was when, you know, she has the school in Africa, the girls' yeah, school. Yeah, And she said that there was a moment of real clarity and I don't want to quote her because I don't want to quote Oprah wrong, but it was something like everything up to that point had made sense. This was who, you know, she's not a mother. This was who she was meant to be, the mother to mm-hmm. these, these girls. Um, do you ever feel that... Because there was the thing with the egg, um, egg, timer it, egg, test. Time, egg timer test, yeah. um, we talked about resentment. Do you ever resent the anxiety for what it did to your body because you because it went on so long and the fact that... Briefly, I do, every now and then. Um, so I ended up finding out that I could have children, so I healed my body to such an extent that mm. I got pregnant at 42 and I've had a couple of miscarriages since. Um, and predominantly I've had problems getting sperm. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say it outright. Um, and I'm now, you know, 45 and a half. And I've fallen uh, in love with you big time right now. <laughs> That's amazing. I spent quite a bit of time hustling for sperm. Um, so um, I'm going to get you a T-shirt made. <laughs> <laughs> sperm wanted. Um, it's sperm too late. Hustler. Probably too. Yeah, it's probably too late for it now. But anyway, um, yeah, I get incredibly sad. There's grief. Mm. It's grief actually. Mm. And look, grief is not a, such a bad emotion to work through because it's finite. Um, David White, my favourite poet, he talks about how you fall into grief, like falling into love. Mm. Basically, you got a four, 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 and eventually you land at a point in deep pain where the thing that has been lost that used to hold you, you reach that point and they're no longer there mm. and what you meet instead is yourself. And, yeah. um, and that's when you build incredible resilience from something that happened that could, could create a lot of resentment. Mm. So I think the, the best thing you can do is fall into grief and I still grieve the loss of the opportunity to be a mother 
But I made some distinct choices, which I I won't talk about in great detail because I haven't processed it myself. But I did make a choice recently that I was going to choose my work. I was going to choose um, dancing these different dances, hopefully in a way to get some some wokeness, you know, mm. and um, and so whether that plays out, whether it works, I don't know, but it's certainly got me very, very focused and vigilant. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't it places pressure on me because you know, in some ways, a sacrifice has been made, you know, and um, so it's not a normal life, you know. You know, when you mm. for a woman not to have children. Um, it's not a, it's, it's unusual. It's not normal. And you've got to define yourself every day as a result, you know? Um, mm. yeah, I think, I think it's, and especially at this age where mm. all your friends are ensconced in having children, you know, they've got children of various ages and that's their life. And so there's almost this big sort of pause period where we can't see each other we can't connect like we used to I'm waiting for them to come out the other end in a couple of years same you know I'm waiting for bottomless brunches yeah (laughs) (laughs) they've had to stop yeah instead of um oh okay yes I'll meet you at that pram accessible park at (laughs) between breastfeeding you know breastfeeding times um sure when you're on the form, other side of your town. Yeah, when your former great drinking buddy can now only just about handle one glass of Chardonnay. So oh, well, the, Chardonnay. Other thing that, well, the other thing that happens, of course, is I'm the person they ring when they want to have a big booze fest. And Same. I'm like, I don't... I, I can only I can only have one drink mm. like that's all I'm interested in because mm. um, I'm out you know with various gay friends um, <laughs> you know sort of during the week so yeah they're all thinking it's going to be a big night and I'm like nine o'clock I'm heading yeah. home you know um, so yeah it's an, it's it's uh, the grief yeah grief is important yeah you've got to pass through these tough emotions you have to sit and pass through anxiety and do it once you go through grief and you do it right. Um, and then you find you find your, the, the part of yourself that can hold you and it can take the place of the thing that, that you thought could hold you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's really beautiful and I think it's interesting um, because when I went into therapy, when I came out at the end, I had a motto that I didn't have before. Yeah. It sounds really depressing, but I find it unbelievably empowering and it's you're on your own kid. Oh yeah, I, I love always that. Used to, I always used to be literally be looking up for somebody to go. <gasps> you're tired. You're exhausted. You should stop. Because I never, because I couldn't trust myself, and now I don't look to anybody. It's another form of consumption, because it's this whole part of our culture where we reach outwards to something else, mm. shopping, a boyfriend, somebody else's advice, mm. a self help book, and. When you realise you were born into this world on your own and you're going to die on your own and it's a beautiful, liberating thing to become your own best friend, Mm. you know. You probably remember the book, in the book, the meditation technique of sitting on a bench with yourself Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's a small eye and you're the big eye, you know, that sort of difference between the ego and consciousness and you have a discussion with yourself, you know, mm. and I love that notion of just sitting next to myself. Here I am. Come on. Mm. Come on, Sarah. I'll carry you through this day. Come on. You know, um, I sometimes even try to use sort of soft language like, come on, sweetheart, <laughs> we're going to do this, right? You're just having a really, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and you've got you've to find that dialogue and it's not self-indulgent. Because you're doing it so that you can operate in a more caring, 
a productive giving way in the rest of the world you know and in fact meditation is a good thing it's on my list you can see listeners you can hear the rustling I've got several pages <laughs> of notes but one of the things is that um your different techniques for dealing with anxiety and we've covered some already but I love the fact that you have said previously meditation's tedious I do it because it works yeah it's and I think I've also said I'm a shit meditator <laughs> like my meditation teacher laughs at me because I'm like I still haven't progressed I've been meditating for almost 10 years now um so this is how I explain it when you're in meditation and you're a bad meditator it's actually a really good thing because what happens is your mind wanders and the technique is to gently bring yourself back to the mantra the breath whatever mm-hmm. it is the candlelight whatever it might be and off it meanders again and you gently bring it back and you do that over and over again and it's tedious when you're sitting there for 20 minutes watching your brain go off to what you're going to cook for dinner and all this kind of thing yeah bring it back bring it gently bring it back (laughs) and so um it doesn't really matter what happens in the meditation it's what you're doing is rebuilding that muscle of gently bring it back so that when you go out into the rest of the world and you get a bit frazzled and a bit fired up you are in the habit of Gently bring it back. Mm -hmm. You know, what is it? You're on your own, kid. Gently bring it back Mm -hmm. to yourself. Come Mm -hmm. on, you're on your own. Come and do it. We're going to be all right. We're going to be all right. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what meditation does. It's as simple as that. I don't know that my meditation teacher would describe it that way, but I've broken it down over (laughs) many years of being a shit meditator, Mm -hmm. and that's what's happened. And I can witness it in myself. My brain, I can feel it in my brain. Mm. I can actually feel my brain is physically different. It feels different. And the way I approach, um, you know, some of my anxiety spirals is very, very, it's with a lot more solidity. Yeah. Mm. I also think there's no way of knowing if you're meditating right. No. It's so subjective. Oh, and you know what? When people go, oh, I transcend, it's amazing. I'm like, yeah, right. You're just kind of numbing out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I think somebody, um, a girl I met here in the UK once actually, um, she said if if you're not anxious, what did she say? If you're not anxious, then you're not paying attention. (gasps) I kind of love that. Yeah, yeah. Um. Can I ask how you feel about, I was asked this on another podcast recently about um, whether I identify as somebody who has anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. And my answer is not anymore, simply because if I identified as it, I would identify as the worst parts of it. So I have to, Mm -hmm. I have to, I have to feel like it's something that I'm not over, but that I'm at the tail end of. Okay. I don't know what you think about that. Um, do I identify? No, I don't because I don't think I have ever identified as a label Mm -hmm. and that's part of my character. If somebody said, do not touch that wet paint, I'll just go and touch it. Um, not because I'm particularly rebellious, but I want to test, you know? Um, so, um, sure I have been diagnosed with bipolar on many occasions by different psychiatrists and I've been treated for it and on paper I display certain qualities mm. that align. Um, and as a rough, sorry to interrupt, but as a mm. rough definition of bipolar, it's the, is it as simple as saying it's the highs and the lows? Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Mm. It's, um, mania is quite specific, I find, and I'm more on, I'm more of a hypomania. Mm-hmm. I've got more, I've got hypomania. Mm-hmm. So I, it's like 
I'm a kite that whips up, you know, and the lead, the, the lead or the rope, mm. the, the string gets longer and longer, but it just can whip and whip in right. the wind, you know. Um, and it's wild, but it goes to – the other way I describe it is like running down a hill so fast my legs can't move fast enough to hold me. So it's just this momentum, you know, and it's exhilarating but really scary at the same time. And in my case, I have adrenal crash rather than a depression. Mm. I think a lot of my mania is a reaction to the depression I had as a teenager. I hate it so much Mm. that I'll ricochet, I'll summons all of my energy to ricochet out of that place. So, so, um, yes, there's certain behaviours that obviously – it takes, I've got to stand back from it and go, oh, yeah, <laughs> there's certain bipolar stuff going on there. Um, however, I, I guess it's another choice thing, right? I don't want to identify as that because mm. I um, I have characteristics that um, are particular and they can be used in certain ways and they've got to be managed in other ways and I take responsibility for it. And I think sometimes that it takes away the sense of responsibility if you just sit with a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Now, when you're younger or when you first get anxious or a disorder of some sort, a diagnosis is really helpful because it allows it to put it, put for you to put all your stuff on a shelf for a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, the doctor said, I've got this and I can take some medication that treats it and it can just sit on a shelf for a while so that you can get on with the rest of your life for a bit. Mm. And I guess the challenge, and if any listeners, if you're in this space yourself, if you can find, if, you, if you're in that space where you're on medication, you're getting help, you've got a diagnosis and you're reasonably stable, now start to investigate. Mm-hmm. Now start to push the boundaries, learn to meditate, start to read about different um, philosophers who mm-hmm. had similar, you know, kind of behaviours. Um, try different techniques, find ways of modulating your idiosyncrasies, mm-hmm. your quirks, so that you can mani- you can be who you are and have a great life. But if you hang on to the diagnosis, I think it basically keeps you in the same position. It yeah. means that you don't, it, it, it takes away the sense of responsibility. I definitely felt when I was diagnosed, which is about four years ago now, it was something to work on. I never sat in it and was like, oh... Yes. Great. Okay. That explains everything. And then- I think it's got to be two pronged. Mm-hmm. I think you've got to modulate, therefore work on it, mm-hmm. find techniques so that you don't, you know, spiral out of control, you know, diet, meditation, whatever it might be. And then on the other, fl- other side of things, you've also got to sit in it, own it, accept it, mm-hmm. reframe it, learn about it, um, ride through it. It's like turbulence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, you know, it's like, what is it? Um, what was it? Who was the person with the three bears? Goldilocks. Yeah. You've got to find the, the sweet spot, yes. you know? You've got to find the sweet spot where you're modulating and changing your behaviours, but not to the point where you feel like you've got to eradicate it. Mm-hmm. You're just taking the edges off it, and then you've also got to at the same time accept it, move through it, not think that you're f- ever going to fix mm-hmm. it or eradicate it. Yeah. You and I both have a similar experience. We are drawing very close to the end of our time together but I do want to just quickly say this because um I read the book a while ago and then I've reread it recently and I got really hit by the part where you talked about you had you talked a minute ago about adrenal crash yeah and that's what happened to me and I went from being able to run half marathons and you know was in the squat rack and powerlifting, all this kind of stuff 
and I just couldn't do it anymore. And I had to, I had to go back to the beginning and start walking. Yeah. Yeah. It, oh, doesn't it slap your ego down? And seeing you write about it really brought it all back of how, how much of a failure I used to feel like walking out of my house. And I was in such, so, so much anxiety at the time that I dressed for all weather conditions. Yeah. <laughs> so I was wearing like eight layers of clothes just in case. Yeah. And, um, it was literally the thing of, I'd been able to run a half marathon without, without even really thinking about mm. it. It's easy. And then I would go and walk for 20 minutes, c- come back and have to immediately peel myself out of my sweat drenched clothes. And that's how I think it can be if you let yourself get so bad. But I would put it to you only because I had to put it to myself mm. that you had to get so bad before you'd realise that running yourself ragged in marathons might not have been the right thing for you, that, or at least the mindset. The mindset mm. of push, push, push was no longer appropriate for you and your growth. And I, I actually really agree with that. But here's my dilemma, and I wonder if you have the same dilemma too. I started this podcast not realising quite how much I would talk about this, but I uh, think it's a conversation that is very important to have. And I don't want any of my listeners to go as low as I did. I really want to save yeah, them from it. Yeah. And I can see, and listeners, Emma's got tears in her eyes. She <laughs> says that. But um, you're right. In many ways, it could be the best thing that happens. Yeah. Um, I, oh, I think it was Nietzsche said that he wishes the deepest, darkest places on his most loved people, on the, you know, on his most, on his loved ones. Um, because I think, uh, you know, there's an ama- there's amazing stuff to come from it, mm. you know. And it was Nietzsche that definitely said this. He said, um, humans can endure any how if they've got a why. So if they know why they're doing things, if they can get to the nub of what's meaningful in their mm. life, then you can endure any pain. You know, and every great story throughout history, every great biopic, every great moment that led us forward as humans always, always involved that hero's journey Mm. through pain. I mean, we come out screaming into the world. We are in, we arrive in pain. What makes us think it's going to be any different for the next, (laughs) you know, eight decades? Um, it's probably the best thing we can do is accept that pain isn't that bad. Mm. Just go to it, do it, move on, you know. And we, we in our culture, we do everything to avoid pain, right down to avoiding discomfort, avoiding boredom, avoiding a, a brief moment when our phone goes flat. And mm. uh, we are suffering not so much from um, anxieties and all this kind of thing as a broad-based thing. We're suffering from a lack of resilience. Yes, and, and that's, I think, sadder. Yeah. Because we are going to be dealt with deaths. We're going to be dealt with heartache, grief, disasters. That is called being human. Mm. And if we protect ourselves from it and try to protect our listeners, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> from it, um, we're doing a disservice because it's resilience that we need more than anything else. And which brings me back to something um, you said in another interview where you said, um, we are currently living in a way that makes us feel as though we can't cope. Yeah. Yeah, well, we delegate mm. so much to others, and I'm—I that's my real weak point. I think 
for whatever reason, the answer was out there somewhere else. Everybody else got the guidebook to life. Mm-hmm. Everybody else knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And we have all grown up with a self-help culture, with um, everything can be Googled. All the answers can be at our fingertips. We don't sit in things and endure and find a way out that might be more nuanced or more personal. Mm. We just, as soon as something goes wrong, we pick up the phone and complain or we find a solution, we fix it, you know. Um, And I don't quite know what to do about that other than to build resilience in other ways. Turn off your phone, go for a day without a phone, you know. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but those little things. And when something painful happens, don't run from it. You know, sit through it and go, why is this happening? What's it trying to tell me? Mm. What am I what am I going to learn from it rather than how can I eradicate it? Yeah. It's instead of going, I don't like it, I want it to stop, it's going, okay. It, yeah, exactly right. Instead of looking away, it's looking towards. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's really beautiful. Well, listeners, I don't want you to go through any hard times, <laughs> but I do think that I do hope that you always know you have this podcast as something to tether yourself to for advice and for people like Sarah and also her book genuinely it is not one of the best it is the best things I have ever read in terms of uh, describing describing anxiety so that you don't feel alone because I know pulling another quote from my notes you didn't you you wrote about it because you didn't want people to feel alone or you had felt alone yeah but also it's the practical tips and it's the insight and it's um, as I've said on this podcast before Knowing that breathing technique has a chemical causes a chemical reaction that you cannot override gives me safety and comfort. And what your book does is it gives you the data, it gives you the expert insight that, in my opinion, gives an, an incredible amount of safety. It's not a life raft; it's a it's a freaking island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for such a wonderful, um, considered conversation. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me for that episode i really hope that you enjoyed it if you want to get in touch with me why not email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or you can always dm me on social media where i'm at emma guns and if you want to have a conversation with me and fellow listeners click the link in the show notes which can be found wherever you are streaming and downloading this episode and join the closed facebook group there's a community of 3,000 people in there who are talking about not only episodes of the show but various topics and other things that have come out of podcast episodes and if you are listening to this somewhere where you can leave a five-star review or even a couple of sentences about what you're enjoying i would be so grateful if you could take a couple of minutes to do that it makes a a podcast like mine stand out on these huge platforms thank you so much for listening cannot wait for you to join me on the next one